0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. And with that, let's go ahead to Genesis. If you hopefully as you came in, you got a bulletin of the day. It's also on your app there. And if you look at your bulletin, the Sermon of the Day is out of the book of Genesis, as I said, by way of review and introduction for maybe those who haven't been with us. We just usually I'm in the New Testament which talks about the ministry of Jesus Christ and what that meant in different books of the New Testament. And to, I decided to take a pause from that and go back to the very beginning of the Bible. So in the summer, started a series on the book of Genesis, and we actually just started the first verse of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been going verse by verse, kind of paragraph by paragraph through Genesis. We made it through the first week of creation, all seven days. We learned a lot together to see what God's Word had to say about how everything began. And that was a blessed time of study together. Uh and then we started chapter two last week, and today we will be looking at chapter two, verses four through seven. And that corresponds to your bulletin handout there. The title of the sermon today is Yahweh Makes the First Human. And we'll talk about the significance of those four letters Y H W H, pronounced as Yahweh, Genesis two, four through seven. And then on your outline there A summary statement is, in this passage, Moses describes how God made the first human, Adam, who then became the progenitor of the whole race. That's the main point in this passage, verses 4 through 7. At least that's what the Bible says. Whether you know that or not, it's in the Bible. Whether you even believe that that's in the Bible, that's what the Bible says. That's what it teaches. It's the only thing it teaches on this issue answering the question, where did everything come from? And in particular, where did all humans inevitably come from? How did we get here? And the Bible's answer to that question right here specifically is in Genesis chapter 2. when we begin to look at that answer from God's point of view, verses 4 through 7, where God makes the first human being, which is actually the first man. His name was Adam or Adam, made of the earth. And today, if you're a human being and breathing, according to the Bible, you came from Adam and his first wife, Eve, who will also Meet throughout the chapter. It doesn't matter where you were born, what your ethnicity is, what country you're from, where your descendants are from, what color your skin is, what language you speak, what your socioeconomic status is, what your gender, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us came from Adam and Eve. That is the story that the Bible gives. That's the only story. There's no alternative opinion from Scripture. So we have the privilege of looking at the origin of that story today. So from that point of view, this passage, whether you 're a Christian or not or if you study the Bible or not or believe it or not, this passage has relevance to every person here. Very practical, many, many implications of the truth herein now, as you 're looking at the outline, notice there are three points there: the formula, the foreshadowing, and the formation and that 's just going through these verses in the narrative text as Moses wrote those down and i'm just those are just kind of trying to break it up piece by piece so we can really focus in on. The passage and the truths and then try to glean some practical implications for us as we go through so it's you know technically it's hard to outline or almost impossible to outline a narrative story and that's what this is in chapter two it's a narrative story as moses is telling it but notice there are three points there don't get too excited thinking we're going to actually get all through all three points today just ahead of time we'll probably just focus on that first point today because it is so important and one of the reasons that point number one is so important is because point number one actually will help you as a Bible student, if you're a Christian, to understand the whole book of Genesis. Up to this point, we haven't got to this very significant interpretive point or hermeneutical point. And so you can't understand and appreciate the fullness of Genesis the way Moses wrote it until we talk about point number one, which is in verse 4 of chapter 2 today. And hopefully you'll see why. Hopefully it's just going to kind of open your eyes to the whole book of Genesis in a profound way. That's my heart's desire, and then, Lord willing, we'll follow up in the next week or so with uh, points two and three. But I'm pretty confident you're going to appreciate our study today. So just by way of summary again, we went through the first seven days of creation. Uh, The first six days are in chapter one. The seventh day was addressed in chapter two, verses one through three. Uh, Things we've noted that Moses is the author of the whole book of Genesis. Moses lived about 1400 BC. Moses was raised in the in egypt in the house of pharaoh and he was highly privileged and highly educated even though he was jewish or israelite by birth so he had the privilege of being raised in that uh, educated and privileged environment for about 40 years god used him later in his life to be a prophet of god and so one of those things he was called to do was write the whole book of genesis amazing in 1400 bc moses spoke several languages whatever the egyptian language was at the time but he also spoke hebrew being a jew or an israelite and so he wrote genesis in hebrew originally it's been kind of fun as we've been going through genesis as i've been studying i've had to study the the hebrew text usually i'm in the new testament which is the greek text so this has been a new challenge as i've had to dust off all of my hebrew books and study tools but it's been fun just going through verse by verse word by word in the hebrew text seeing what Moses had put down and then trying to communicate that to you in a way you can understand and up to this point Many of you have picked up on your hebrew vocabulary And you're mem- remembering it and they have significance and you're telling me these words like bara Which means create barah. It's used several times chapter 1 and chapter 2 bara create and the significance of that word If you recall was only god Is the creator bara when that word is used it's talking about god human beings don't bara god elohim bara He is the creator So that was a unique verb we talked about. Tohu and bohu, several of you liked that one because it rhymed. Uh, Formless and void, talked about that one. That was great. Elohim, the name of God used over 30 times in Genesis chapter 1, which is the most kind of generic name of God, referring to him as the powerful creator, Elohim. And that is the only name used in the Hebrew text of God in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to note, oh, Something significant changes today in our verse at hand. Chapter 2, verse 4, it refers to God by a different name other than just Elohim. Look at verse 4, the Lord God. And in your English Bible, it's Lord is all capital letters. That's kind of unique, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What What is that? Well, that's Yahweh in Hebrew. So this is the first time in the book of Genesis, the first time in the Bible, but in Genesis in particular, that Moses uses the name Yahweh and it's Yahweh Elohim. It's a compound name. So Moses is making a transition now in the book of Genesis and he lets us know it by the way he uses God's name now all throughout chapter 2. It's Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. Not just God, the creator, the transcendent one, but now the personal covenant-keeping, faithful, merciful God who is savior and creator. And that's the significance of that name, Yahweh, the eternal Covenant-keeping, faithful God, and particularly in the Old Testament to his people, the Jews. So we're going to see more significance about that. Uh, The word for day, yom, and what you've learned up to this point is anytime yom, the word for day, has a number in front of it as an adjective, always, 100% of the time in the Old Testament, it always means a real day. So Moses, when he wrote Genesis chapter 1, concluded each day of creation by enumerating each day. The first day, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, day 7. These were real days, according to Moses, according to God, and according to the audience that Moses was preaching to and writing to. They didn't understand it any other way. So we just take it at face value. We learned about Adam, Adam, from the earth. Nefesh, uh, that word, which means life or a living creature. And we learned that birds and fish and land animals and even human beings are nefesh, they're soulish creatures. They're living creatures. It sets them apart from inanimate objects like rocks and even plants. Plants don't have nephesh, this living, soulish life that God breathed into them, the animals and humans. Well, what sets humans apart from animals if they're both nephesh? Well, because we saw in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 that God created Adam in his image, and that's not true of human beings. God made human beings as persons. So that's just a summary of uh, everything we've looked at up to this point. We finished the seven days. And like I said, now look at chapter 2, verse 4. This is a major transition in the book of Genesis. I would say and posit that chapter 2, verse 4, begins a new section in the book of Genesis. So if you're studying it, you could consider Genesis 1, 1 up through chapter 2, verse 3, kind of the prologue or the introduction to the book of Genesis. And that really, chapter 2, verse 4, is actually technically chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, the way Moses wrote it. Keep in mind, Moses, when he wrote this in Hebrew, he didn't write with these chapter divisions where we have them in our English Bible, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. He didn't do that. He's probably writing on some papyrus scroll or etching it into some stone. And he's just going in columns, writing those Hebrew letters, every once in a while making a space for a break but he wasn't writing numbers as far as chapter divisions so the numbers in your English Bible at chapter divisions aren't sacrosanct they're not inspired so that's why I would say that unfortunately they broke it off there and it should have been chapter 2 verse 4 beginning the next chapter Uh, then Moses begins uh, dividing the book of Moses uh, the book of Genesis up into chapters uh, throughout the book starting with chapter 2 verse 4 if we're going to see that by the way so when were chapters added to your English Bible? Probably in the 1200s, 1227, by some uh, English chap, a cardinal, Catholic bishop, and then that caught on because it was convenient. And then a couple hundred years later, they started adding verses. Another scholar added verses, and that kind of stuck. And so they've been with us ever since. And they, they are helpful to access, and, but they aren't from Moses. That's just I wanted you to keep that in mind. So uh, up to this point, just another thing before we jump into Genesis chapter 1 and 2, because in the Christian world, there's a lot of debate and dialogue and confusion about how we're supposed to understand Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and many times Christians, Christian scholars, Christian seminary professors, Christian pastors tell us that you can't take Genesis 1 and 2, or Genesis 1 through 3 at face value, or as history, or as literal, hear it all the time that's probably the dominant view actually in the church today which i think is kind of sad and we've talked about this so just by way of reminder uh when moses wrote this in 1400 bc he was writing it as history that's the way he understood it he just thought okay god's giving me revelation i'm writing it down and he believed it is the word of god and the audience that moses wrote to those 1.5 million israelites that moses was writing to they believed this was history they took it at face value they didn't understand it any other way there was no alternative and The Jews from the time of Moses for 1,400 years up to the time of Christ, they all believed it was literal at face value. That's how they read it. They didn't have any other way to understand it. And so the Jews in Jesus' day, when they read Genesis 1 and 2, they understood it as real history with no competing alternative. We know for a fact that the New Testament apostles took Genesis literally, including Genesis 1 and 2. They were pretty smart, sharp guys. Peter, Paul, apostles moved by the Spirit of God. They took it literally at face value. And then get this, we talked about Jesus, the greatest rabbi, Old Testament scholar there ever was. (laughs) Actually, Jesus, the eternal one who was God himself, who knew all things and still knows all things. He believed Genesis was literal, and he taught it accordingly. And there are many places where he referred to Genesis. But before we look at verse 4, because it's so important, of chapter 2, I do want you to flip into your New Testament, because we haven't done this yet in detail, to Matthew chapter 19. Now, Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. For the first 30 years, we don't really have a whole lot of information about what he was doing other than being a faithful son at home and an older brother and working hard, all the while being almighty, eternal God in a human body. That boggles the mind. He was sinless, he was perfect, and then he was called by God the Father up in heaven to begin his messianic public teaching ministry at age 30 and he was doing that for three years and he knew he was going to go to the cross and be crucified even though he was sinless and without fault but he was deliberately going to die on a cross and be executed publicly for six hours hanging on a cross the worst egregious possible uh, kind of crime that you could die for was crucifixion but he was doing that as a substitute for sinners he was dying the death that sinners deserved and jesus willingly did that because he was the savior he was the messiah that's why he was born and towards the end of his teaching ministry after three years more and more the more he teaches about the righteousness of god and the truth of the old testament the messiah the more and more angry he's making people okay so he's teaching in israel he's teaching among the jews and the jewish leadership are resisting jesus more and more for the course of three years they are trying to arrest him shut him down silence him even kill him Clearly, that is what Scripture says. And so it finally reaches a crescendo here in Matthew 19. This is almost the end of his life where he's going to be crucified. He's going to be arrested by these Jewish leaders, these fellow Jewish rabbis who are supposed to be experts on the Old Testament, the Torah, the law of Moses, which is what Jesus is teaching and interpreting accurately, saying that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, including the Torah and the book of Genesis. And he's teaching publicly, and he has crowds following, following him everywhere he goes, throngs of people pressing in on him, great popularity from the masses. That makes the leadership of the Jews very jealous. That's why they, they want to shut it down. They have evil hearts. This oligarchy of Jewish leadership that had all the power, and so They try to confront Jesus while he's publicly teaching and present him a stumbling block or present him a trap that he might step in it and then expose himself as a false teacher. They've tried that many times. It never works, and they try it again here in Matthew 19. So here's the scenario. When Jesus had finished uh, these words, teaching, publicly, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That was where Jerusalem, the capital city, was, and that's where the Jews were most hostile in terms of the leadership So he's going towards Jerusalem now and large crowds followed him. See, that's what the leadership didn't like. They got incredibly jealous. And he healed them there. He does miracles. They can't do miracles. It's undeniable he does miracles. It's undeniable. So they didn't deny his miracles. They said, Satan gives you the ability to do those miracles. Verse three, some Pharisees, the Pharisees, those were the Jewish leaders. Pharisees, that means the pure ones. They call themselves the pure ones. So the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, they came to Jesus, here it is, testing him. You know what that means? They came to Jesus publicly to ask him a question to try to trap him, expose him, and make him look like a fool. So it was pretty much a yes and no question. We're going to ask Jesus this trick question, and that way if he answers yes, he'll be exposed as a liar, and if he says no, he'll be exposed as a false teacher, that's what they were thinking. So the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and and asking him. And here's their trick question. Is it lawful, Jesus, Old Testament Bible scholar? Is it lawful? When they say lawful, they say, what does the book of Moses say? What does the Old Testament say? What does Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus say on the question we're about to ask you? That's what lawful means, the Torah, something very specific. What does our Old Testament scriptures say, Mr. Rabbi Jesus, on the issue of divorce? There's a very controversial issue. Is it lawful, according to the Old Testament, and Moses to divorce his wife? for any reason at all. Now, if Jesus said, well, yes, you can divorce your wife because Moses gave at least one exception under the conditions which you could divorce your wife. Now, if he said that, then the Pharisees could say, oh, see this, this so-called Messiah and Savior and rabbi denigrates marriage. He's saying you can divorce. He can't be from God. So that was part of the trap. If he said, yes, there's a cause for divorce. But if he said, no, there is no cause for divorce, then they could jump on him there and say, oh, you don't know the Torah at all. Because in the book, uh, in, in the Torah, in the book of Moses. Uh, it is condemned. So uh, anyway, going back actually Genesis chapter two, where God preserves marriage. And then Moses also gives an exception for divorce. And if Jesus said, no, you can't get divorced, then they would say, then you contradict Moses because Moses gave at least one exception for divorce. So they're trying to expose him. It's a lose-lose scenario. And so look at how Jesus responds to their question, which they thought was a shoe in Testing him, asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And then verse four, and Jesus answered and said, have you not read? Okay, that's a rebuke. Jesus says that many times. We see in the Gospels, have you not read? And he usually says it to these so-called Jewish Old Testament scholars. Really, it's rhetorical. Obviously, you don't know your Bible. That's what he's saying. It was very insulting. Have you not read? They're supposed to be scholars of the Mosaic law. Have you not read, or you don't really understand at all. Have you not read that he who created them, that's God, Elohim. He who created them from the beginning... He who created, when Elohim created Adam and Eve from the beginning, you know what Jesus is referring to? Genesis chapter 1. Jesus believed that Genesis chapter 1 was the beginning. Jesus believed that those were six real days. Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people. That's what he is saying, and that's what he believes. That's what he's affirming. This is not just theological truth. This is historical truth. So he who created them, Elohim, Adam and Eve from the beginning, and then he quotes from genesis chapter 1 he made them male and female jesus quotes genesis 127 as fact then he does an amazing thing he just keeps going verse 5 and he said god said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh that's amazing what did jesus do there he quoted genesis chapter 2 So Jesus, in one answer, he quotes Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. He connects them together as they are just one book, one chapter, one fluid historical account of the same time and the same event. Jesus saw no distinction between Genesis and chapter 1. He didn't pit them against one another. They weren't contradictory. They were speaking of the same time in history by the same author. And they go together, melded perfectly together, and that's what Jesus does. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6 So they shall no longer be two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he, Jesus starts, he bypasses their question. That's a trick question, goes back to the beginning of God's creation of marriage, God's ideal for marriage, God's intent for marriage, which still stands and hasn't changed despite sinful humanity. You can't argue with that. So they were flustered, they were exposed, they had no response. They try to take Jesus on in verse six, uh, verse seven. They said to him, well, why why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said, verse eight, he said that to him because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because of sin. That's why God made an allowance for sin. And then he goes on with the discussion. So let's go back to Genesis chapter two. And what I wanted to point out there is if you spend some time looking at Matthew chapter 19, you see very clearly that Jesus knew the book of Genesis. He had it mastered. He was a rabbi. He believed it was literal and historical. He believed it all went together. He believed that chapter one and two totally, perfectly complemented one another. And that's exactly what God did in the very beginning. And that's how it is to be understood. This is a literal reading and understanding of scripture, even Genesis. And that's the model that we should follow. And so that's The paradigm we're going to follow as we keep walking through the book of Genesis, taking it at face value, trying to interpret it and understand it the way God did. So uh, with that introduction, let's go ahead and look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And let me read that passage, keeping in mind that the title here is, as I said, Moses creates the first human being, and his name was Adam. And we all came from Adam. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I don't know if you noticed this or picked up on it while you're reading, but verses 4, 5, and 6 actually are quite a challenge, number one, to interpret, and then also to understand. If you read it carefully, it's like, what? Wait, when verse 5, for example. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. You know what that sounds like? That sounds that sounds like there were no plants yet. Verse 5, now, when, when there were no plants... What did God do? Verse 7, God made the first man Adam. So this sounds like God made Adam before plants. And immediately it's like, well, wait a minute. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 on day 3, verse 11, chapter 1, 11, God created plants on day 3. Then three days later on day 6, chapter 1, verse 26, God creates humans. So Genesis 1 clearly teaches God created plants and then God created humans. And here it looks like verse five says there weren't any plants around when God created Adam, the first man. So this is the most common passage brought up to critique, particularly Genesis one through three by the critics, not just unbelieving non-Christian scholars, but Christian scholars as well to say that. See, this is why you can't take Genesis one through three literally because if you did you're going to get into a quandary real quick because the bible has an error a contradiction chapter two contradicts chapter one there's an error in your bible and therefore your bible is not errant or inerrant and therefore you can't rely or trust the bible that's what the critic would say it's a blatant error now the christian many christians will say well it's not an error technically because we're not supposed to understand genesis 1 and 2 literally they're figurative they're symbolic Uh, the, The poetry of Genesis 1 is emphasizing one truth, namely, and only that God is creator. Okay, we got that out of the way. Now we go to chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 2, whoever the writer was, is trying to emphasize a different truth. So you're not supposed to pit Genesis 1 and 2 together. They don't go together. As a matter of fact, they weren't even written by the same guy. As a matter of fact, they weren't even written the same period of history. Now, these are Christians who say this. They would say that Genesis 1 actually was probably written first maybe about 900 bc so moses didn't write it moses was long gone and dead but some school of hebrew scribes got a bunch of information together and they wrote genesis chapter one and then several hundred years later another jewish group of school of scribes they wrote chapter two and then another scribe kind of took a needle and some thread and started sewing these passages together And they did that all throughout the book of Genesis. So they would say that Genesis was not written by Moses, and it wasn't written 1400 B.C., but it was written 900 B.C. by one school, and then there was another school that wrote chapter 2 and a few other chapters. And then there's a third school that wrote the rest of Genesis in about 500 B.C. And so Genesis really wasn't one book written together at the same time in a whole with continuity all throughout by the same author. Actually, it started out as like a little snowball and then, like, you're up at the top of the hill during a snowstorm, and then you roll that snowball down the hill, and as you go, you kind of pack it down, and as the further it goes down the hill, the bigger the snowball gets. So at the bottom of the hill, you've got this big old snowball, which is Genesis 1 through 50, but it developed over time, over hundreds of years, by many different authors. And so there's really, there's not one author, and there's no cohesion or continuity throughout. And that's why, as you read it, it's like, uh it's kind of a hodgepodge, eclectic, Mosaic mess that somebody threw together over time That's actually a very common and popular view among evangelical christians so much. So that was the view I was taught my freshman year at a christian college In santa barbara, california as a freshman and I didn't know better. It's like, oh, okay Well, that guy's got a phd from cambridge, so he knows more than I do sounds good to me Uh, But it undermines everything we know about the bible historically and what jesus said So with that background in mind, knowing that that is a very dominant and prominent view, let's actually look at chapter 2, verse 4, point number 1 that I have there on your outline. And first we're going to look at the formula. Another Hebrew word for you. you ready? I wrote it out for you so you can get it. Toledoth. Toledoth, T-H at the end. That Hebrew word is reflected in your English translation. Look at verse 4. If you have a New American Standard, it's the English word account in your New American Standard Bible. Toledoth. If you have an ESV, you have the word generations there. Toledoth. If you have the New King James Version, you have the history of. See, you have three very different translations of the same Hebrew word, Toledoth. And it makes a big difference. Remember last week we talked about first got to get the translation down before you can go with interpretation. And so of the 40 usages of this Hebrew word Toledoth in the Old Testament, Moses uses it the most. And he uses Toledoth 11 times in the book of Genesis. And he uses it as a heading, kind of the chapter title uh, as he goes through the book of Genesis. So every time he wants to begin a new chapter in Genesis, so Genesis technically shouldn't have 50 chapters. It should have like 12 chapters. The prologue, chapter 1 or the prologue is the first section, and then chapter 1 actually begins right here, Toledoth. This is a heading that he used. This is the history of. It. And by the way, well, which translation should we use? Should it be generation, generations or account or the history of? Some translations say the genealogy of. This one word, Toledoth. But looking at the 40 ways that Moses uses Toledoth in the first five books, the history of, Could be used in every one of those passages, the history of the history of the history of that's a totally legitimate uh, Translation that actually renders the root of this word even better. So if you read it that way, this is the history of It's not the generations. It's not the genealogies of the heaven and the earth. You can't have a genealogy of the heavens and the earth So that starting with our translation the new king james does a great job here on this verse This is the history of the heavens and the earth That's the first thing about this word Toledoth. Second thing about Toledoth used 11 times by Moses in the book of Genesis. It's always a heading of a section he's about to talk about. It's always the heading. It's the beginning. This is where it begins. It's like a chapter title. Here we go. So in other words, he's saying in verse four, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. I'm about to tell you about the history of the heavens and the earth very specifically, more specifically than I just did in the prologue in chapter one. And I'm actually going to go on for chapter two and chapter three and chapter four and tell you how all these things began. So it's a heading at the beginning of a section. It means the history of, and the way it's used by Moses almost every single time, the 40 times he uses it, it's, this is the history of, and here's what transpired from this point on. Here's what became of this guy. Here's what became of this family. Here's what became of the Hesmans in the earth that were created without sin, that were pristine in the beginning. And here's what transpired over the course of time. And so here, what Moses wants to say is, here is the history of, or the unfolding, or the Formal, written, historical account of the heavens and the earth and what happened immediately thereafter. And what happened immediately was that humanity was plummeted into sin because that's the main point in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of this section. Chapter 3 is all about how the sin happened. Chapter 4 is all about the consequences of sin. And chapter 2 is how everything began pristine. So it all makes sense. It all goes together. And that's exactly what Moses is saying. Here is the history and the account of what transpired from the time God created the heavens and the earth when everything was perfect in the beginning and immediately spiraled into sin and got us into the mess that we are in. So on your outline there, on your piece of paper, I put for you all those other verses, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 1, what those are, those are all the other usages of Moses' Toledoth in the rest of the book of Genesis. So you could literally... Go to that section and see chapter 5, verse 1. This is the history of the book of Adam. Chapter 5, verse 1. All all through chapter 5. And then you see, oh, here's what became of Adam. What became of Adam? Well, he had all these descendants, and there was death, 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 death. That's what happened with Adam. And then you go to chapter 6, verse 9. This is the history of Noah. And then chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, four chapters is all about what transpired with this man, Noah, the life of Noah, the family of Noah, and the entire world during the time of Noah. Well, it was wicked, viciously so, and God judged it with the flood. And then the next Toledoth is chapter 10, verse 1. What happened after the time of Noah with the descendants of Noah? And it goes all throughout chapter 10, and then it goes up to chapter 27, another significant person, the offspring of Abraham And then you get to chapter 37, what happened with Ishmael, or 36. And then the last Toledoth is chapter 37. This is the history of Jacob, the father of Israel. And immediately it tells the story of Joseph from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 with one continuous thematic account of what transpired leading up to the Exodus. It's absolutely amazing and eye-opening if you understand and read Genesis this way. That's the way it was written. That's the way it's to be understood. This is what Moses was thinking. He was a literary genius. And this is proof of it, just the way he implemented that one word, Toledoth, the history of the formal, historical, written record. By the way, that word Toledoth was formal. It was a written procedure always, and it was for the sake of preserving very important truth. That's how it's used. Book of Numbers chapter one uses it 12 times Toledoth in one chapter. And it's where God tells Moses, Moses, you and Aaron need to take a head count and write this stuff down formally, procedurally, accurately. And he does. And 12 times that word Toledoth is used. So make it a big deal out of one word. Yeah, because it is a big deal. And, and rarely do you hear the critics of Genesis talk about the Toledoth and how important it is. Rarely do you hear the critics of Genesis who are Christians who just want to say, well, it's poetry and we need to bow the knee to Darwinian secular, atheistic, humanistic, naturalistic evolution and not take Genesis literally at face value. No, let's talk about the Toledoth and the fact that it means this is the history of, this is the actual record and human account of, as God interpreted to Moses, in addition to all those times where we saw in Genesis chapter 1, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. In addition to all the wa consecutives we saw in Genesis chapter 1 that tell us this is a narrative historical account to believe at face value. In addition to way the way we saw Jesus interpreted Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, literally in addition to the way Paul and Peter and the other apostles used Genesis literally at face value. That is good reason, good precedent to take Genesis at face value, doesn't it? Wow, Pastor Cliff, aren't you overstating the case? No, I'm not, because it's so important and laying a very important foundation. So in light of that introduction in our little word study, look at your hand out there, points A, B, and C. The formula, the Toledoth, Moses' literary motif. This is the history of what have we learned? Well, three things. Number one, Toledoth is used as a heading. And it makes sense as we read it. As a matter of fact, one commentator, he's a Jewish Christian commentator and scholar, he wrote an entire commentary. It's an excellent commentary on the book of Genesis. And the way he, devi- the way he writes, in his if you look at the table of contents, he broke it up by Toledoth. Toledoth 1, prologue. Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3. Actually, there's no Toledoth at Genesis chapter 1. It's just the prologue. And then Gen- the first uh, Toledoth, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And then that's the way he writes his commentary, which made sense because that's the way Moses wrote it and understood it. So what is a Toledoth? It's the heading, number, uh, letter B. What else is it? It's a hinge, because as you go throughout the book, it is a heading, but it also looks forward to what's going to transpire, but it also looks back to the information that was just giving, connecting the two together. For example, in Genesis 6, 9 is a Toledoth about Noah, but we just heard about the information about Adam. And we're going to hear about Noah, and it connects the two together. So it gives continuity throughout the entire book of Genesis. So there is a seamless flow of history from God's point of view, from the first man, Adam, to Joseph, as the Jews are taken into the land of Egypt, setting us up for Exodus when they will become slaves, when God will raise up Moses as their deliverer. So it's a heading, but it's also a hinge. And finally, uh, letter C, what is the total oath? it means? history history this is the history of well with that i want to prepare our hearts for communion so i want you to go to first corinthians you can have your finger in first corinthians 11 but first we're going to read first corinthians 15 just a section there a reverse to prepare our hearts this is amazing we're going to see about it in the next couple of weeks how god As we go into the details of verse 7 in Genesis chapter 2 where it says God takes the earth, a clump of dirt, and first God forms it into the form of a man. God doesn't have hands, by the way, so I don't know how he did that. He just spoke it and it started happening like a cool sci-fi movie, but it was real. It says God took dirt and formed the first man out of dirt. Well, that's unscientific. Well, God does miracles. Well, that's unscientific. Well, what does a human being turn into when they die? Dirt. Sounds pretty scientific to me. But God forms the first man out of dirt, and then it says he breathes life into him, and thus he became the first living soul. And at that time, when Adam was first created, he was a sinless human being, but he was not a perfected human being yet. In other words, he wasn't the ideal human being. What do you mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at it. Uh, We saw the passage a little earlier, and starting in... Chapter 15, verse 42. uh, Paul tells us about this resurrection. Oh, let me say a word here as the uh, elements are coming around. We're about to celebrate communion. So uh, communion, if you are a Christian and you know Jesus Christ, you are welcome to partake of communion. If you're not a Christian, just let the plate go by. That's fine. Because Jesus gave this special ordinance to his church, to believers, the children of God, people who know Christ, and so as it comes by, I just grab one of the cups. And, and one cup, it has uh, the drink and the bread inside of it. So you don't need two cups. And we're going to partake in just a second together after I read this uh, passage here. And we'll talk a little bit more about the meaning of communion. But uh, right here, Paul is, just says, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, the verse that we just read, that God made Adam a living soul. But he, one thing he says is that the first Adam was earthy. He was made of dust. And he was going to die someday. And then Paul goes on to say that that's not God's ideal. Someday, God's ideal is that every human being will live on forever in an eternal physical resurrection body that will never die again. That's the great truth. That's one of the great things we celebrate as Christians is the resurrection reality where Jesus Christ will come someday as judge, as Savior. He will judge the world and he will resurrect those who have believed in him, his death and resurrection those who have put their faith in him as savior and he will raise them from the dead and he will give them a supernatural resurrection body And we will be with the lord jesus christ forever. That is the promise of the bible That's the promise of jesus and the apostle paul said that's one of the things that christians are supposed to remember is we take communion Before we do we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to reflect. We're supposed to think about the meaning of communion re- Reminded that jesus died for our sins, but also the reminder that he is coming again as the judge of the world, but also as our personal Savior who is going to give us resurrection life. Let's go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, just a couple chapters there, and I want to read this passage before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23, the Apostle Paul explains the meaning of this ordinance that we're taking. It's strictly symbolic. There's nothing mystical when you drink the drink. It's a remembrance. It's a remembrance of truth herein given by Paul. For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you Christians, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, just before he died, he took bread. It's in the bottom cup there. And when he, Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. What he meant was this is a symbol of my body. This is a symbol of who I am, which is for you. Eat it or do this in remembrance of me. So it's a memorial. We remember Jesus and his perfect life and that he was a savior, that he was sinless, that he died for us. That's what we're doing when we celebrate communion. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for sinners. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember that I died for you. Remember that the only way you have forgiveness is my death on your behalf. And if you're a Christian, if you've called out to Jesus to save you from your sins, knowing that he is the only way to heaven, you've prayed to him, he answered that prayer and he adopted you into the family of God and you're a Christian, then this is for you. Now I want to give you just a moment as our piano plays, just in your own heart before you take communion, to meditate in your own heart and and thank the Lord for forgiveness of sin. Thank him for the reality that he's coming again. And if you have any sins, you need to confess to him and get right with him. We have time to do that now. Jesus told his disciples to eat and drink in his name. Let's eat and drink together. And while you're sitting there, before we sing our last song and before we hear these baptisms, just go ahead and close your eyes and. I will lead us in a, a closing prayer. Thanking the Father for our time together. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the Lord's Day. The day that you have appointed for your people to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. to gather with the saints to encourage one another to be taught from your truth. To worship you corporately. To celebrate your ordinances. Just so many Amazing privileges, so we thank you for that, Lord. And most of all, we thank you for ongoing, continual, complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the God-Man, uh, the only Savior in the world, and a gracious and blessed Savior He is. We give you all the glory as we commit all to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Doctor McManus is an author, seminary professor and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.